So are you ready here? Hebrews chapter 10, beginning now at verse 19. Now, it's important that we understand this in the flow, in the context of the entire book of Hebrews, because we're actually now starting a new section in the book of Hebrews. In this new section of the book of Hebrews, the focus is going to be on exhortation, on encouraging us and those who originally received the letter, encouraging them to actually live out the implications of what's already been poured into them. Matter of fact, the first three verses that we cover here this morning are essentially a summary of what he's been talking about in the last several chapters. Let's read that summary together right here, starting at verse 19. Therefore, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh and having a high priest over the house of God, You see, here's what he's doing. He's just drawing together some themes and he's sort of summarizing them. And the summary just basically goes like this is because of what Jesus did on the cross and what he did, especially as the high priest instituting the new covenant. We have access to God that we didn't have before. I mean, that's really what he's talking about. Look at it right here in verse 19. Having boldness. By the way, if you notice that, those words having boldness in verse 19, that is stated as a fact. It's not an exhortation. He does not tell them you really should have boldness. He says you have it. If you are united with Jesus Christ, if you are to use a figure of speech that's both biblical and common in the culture, if you are born again, then you have access to God in heaven by what Jesus did. And you have that access boldly, not arrogantly, not proudly, not aren't I so wonderful that God wants to receive me. That's not the idea at all. The idea is instead this, because of what Jesus did for me and because he makes a new and living way, I can come right into the throne room of God. That's what he says right here in verse 19, that we can have this boldness because we enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. You see, without the blood of Jesus, we wouldn't have this bold access to God's presence. But because of what Jesus did on the cross, therefore we have it. And we have this boldness to enter. It's the present tense. It doesn't say you had it at one time. It doesn't say if you're a very good boy or a good girl, you will have it in the future. It says no, because of who Jesus is and what he did for us, we have this presence, or excuse me, this boldness to enter his presence right here, right now. Notice the phrase he uses in verse 20, this new and living way. This sacrifice of Jesus is always fresh in the sight of God. It's a living way. It's not an old way. There's nothing stale about it. It is a new and living way because it's done for us by the sacrifice of Jesus that is continually valid before God and and is living before him day by day, week by week. And it happens, if you continue on here in verse 20, which he consecrated for us through the veil. Now, you may remember that in the architecture of both the tabernacle and the temple, there was a veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place. And when Jesus died on the cross, the veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place was torn in two. By the way, don't you love it that it was torn in two from the top to the bottom? 
In other words, it wasn't man ripping it from the bottom to the top. No, it was God ripping it from the top to the bottom. And it was open wide. God saying that this barrier that once separated God from man has now been put away with because of what Jesus did on the cross. It's really a marvelous and amazing thing. By the way, I take great comfort in the fact that God didn't roll up or fold up the veil as if it could be dropped down at another time. No, he ripped it in two. It's no longer there. It's no longer valid. By the way, he didn't just open a little hole in it so that just a few good people could get through. He ripped it in two so that even the greatest of sinners could now come on the basis of Jesus's work and come into the presence of God the Father. So he's making this illustration in verse 20 that it's like the flesh of Jesus was like the veil. And when Jesus's body was torn and suffered on the cross, it was like his body was like the veil being torn in two so that we could enter into the promise of God. And therefore it stands. Look at how he sort of concludes with confidence there in verse 21. Having a high priest over the house of God, we have a high priest who presides over the heavenly courts for us. So really, we have two great things going for us. We have a new and living way, if you would imagine the center aisle being like the new and living way, free access to the throne of God. But not only that, you have a high priest who stands there making sure that you can go in and enter in, and that nobody can keep you from the presence of God. And isn't that wonderful? This is the whole thing that he's been building up to over the last few chapters, bringing us to this important and impressive point that God's presence is opened wide for the believer, not on the basis of my works or my goodness or my effort, but on the basis of who Jesus is and what he did on the cross. Now, friends, starting at verse 22... He's going to start speaking about the experiential aspect of this. You see, because it's great for us to say this as a theological idea. And I think it is a wonderful theological idea. Jesus died so that he could open up the way to heaven for us all. And we can come and experience God at his throne because Jesus did this. That's a wonderful theological truth. But can I just say that there's a limit to the value of that theological truth if it's not real in your life. God wants this to be real in your life, not just ink on a page, but a reality that you experience that. That's why he says, look at it right here in verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure waters. In other words, because of what Jesus did and the way that he opened for us, Therefore, let us draw near to God. Let us take advantage. Let us come and walk down this new and living way. Let us come to the destination. Let's make some good about it instead of it being just ink on a page that we think about. Now, friends, this is a very important point for us to make. Two points. First of all, If you'll notice the pattern in the book of Hebrews, the pattern is like this. As it is throughout all of Paul's letters and other places in the New Testament, where he gives us an important theological truth. Here is the truth of what Jesus did for you and who Jesus is. Then after stating that truth, it's now believe it and live in it. Experience it. 
In other words, in our very pragmatic American society, we have a way of saying, hey, preacher, just cut to the point. Don't give me all the theological mumbo jumbo. Just tell me what to do. Come on, just tell me what to do and I'll do it. That's kind of a, of a current. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if there's some people that you kind of think that from time to time as I speak to you on a Sunday morning. Come on, preacher, get to the point. Don't give me the theological high-sounding stuff. I just want to know what to do. Tell me what to do, preacher. Look, I'm happy to tell you what to do or at least explain to you what the Bible says you should do. But it has to be built on this foundation of theological truth. Because God doesn't want your life to be just about doing, but about believing and having what you do built upon a foundation of theological truth. And so first he builds the foundation, and then he says, now this is what you do. That's the first thing we observe. The second thing we observe is that God wants these things to be experiential. This idea of heaven being opened, of the presence of God being available, and you being able to enter into the holiest, it means nothing unless you experience it. Now, I know that when we talk about the experiential aspect of the Christian life, it's a difficult and sometimes maybe even a dangerous thing to talk about because there's so many misunderstandings that can arise. Because whenever we talk about the experiential, we're talking about something that's subjective. I know what it's like for me in my life to enter into the presence of God and to connect with the living God who's on the throne. I know what it's like for me in my life to take advantage of this new and living way and have my great high priest usher me into the presence of God. I know what that's like. But how I experience it in my life may not be exactly how you experience it in your life because, surprise, you're a different person than I am. But there has to be some common link between us on those things. Friends, I want you to think of it this way. God wants you to experience it. And I don't know how and when you'll experience it. Maybe you'll experience it as we worship together. Listen, I hope that when we sing songs of worship to the Lord, for you that it's not just like this communal kumbaya where you get together and you sing songs in the presence of other people that you don't normally sing songs with. I hope that there is a genuinely transcendent moment in there for you from time to time where you realize that you're not just standing in a warehouse in Santa Barbara, California, but that you are actually connecting with the living God who's enthroned in heaven. And if it's never like that for you, I want you to be a little angry. Don't get angry with the people up here. I don't think it's their fault. Because probably the person standing next to you knows what it's like to connect with God. No, get angry at the world, get angry at the flesh, get angry at the devil, because something is preventing you from what is your birthright, and that's connecting with the living God. That's why Jesus died, to pave this way for you. Not only to have your sins forgiven, although then that's the greatest part. We love it that Jesus died to have our sins forgiven and to take us to heaven. But that's not the only reason he died. He also died so that you can have a living, connected relationship with the eternal enthroned God right here, right now. And if you're never experiencing that, if you're never experiencing that in worship, if you're never experiencing it as you pray, if you're never experiencing it as you get into God's word, then something's wrong. 
And I want you to have a little bit of holy boldness and go before God and say, God, your word says that this should be part of my life. And to be honest with you, God, I'm not feeling it. I don't know what this is. For me, this is ink on a page. It's not the experience of my life. And I want to, I need to know what this is in my life. Don't be satisfied with a substandard experience of what God promises for you in the scriptures. So that's why he says, verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You see, we can draw near not because I'm so wonderful. No, perish the thought, but because Jesus is so wonderful and he cleanses me. That's what it means in verse 20, where it says, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. That's the image of the priest applying the blood of sacrifice by sprinkling. And that's what Jesus does for us. He sprinkles us with his sacrificial blood and he cleanses us. And then another way we're connected with that is by water baptism. Look at what he says right here. He says, and our bodies washed with pure water. You know, ritual cleansings with water, it's a part of many religions in the ancient world and even in today. But Christian baptism is different from all those ritual cleansing. It's different in this way. The different is that it's not just sort of a ritual cleansing of defilement or spiritual dirt or something like that. No, Christian baptism is the outward sign of an inward cleansing. Christian baptism says that the water itself doesn't actually do anything, but it illustrates what God has already done spiritually. He's already cleansed me. He's already identified me with Jesus. And now I illustrate that through baptism, which, by the way, points out for us the fact that you could be dunked in water a thousand times. But if the inward reality isn't true in your life, it doesn't matter. You're just getting yourself wet. You're not getting yourself baptized. I need to say a word about this because um, it's just on my heart and it's been on my heart over the past few years. The guys on the staff know that it's kind of a little bit of a hobby horse with me, but I'll just say it anyway. Listen, it's important that we be baptized. And if you were baptized as a baby, that's not enough. You need to be baptized as a believer in Jesus Christ. And I know that those who baptized you as a baby, they meant well and they did it with all good heart. And I'm not trying to criticize that in the slightest. But I will say this. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you need to be baptized and you need to be baptized as a believer, not as a baby. Because I'm sure you were a sweet little baby, but you weren't a baby believer. You were a baby yet to believe. And this is important for you to do. You need to be baptized as a believer in the name of Jesus Christ. It's very important for that to happen, not to save you. You are not saved by baptism, but as a point of obedience, because Jesus told you to do it. It's important to do it because you're obeying Jesus when you're baptized as a believer. But you see, here's the point. Go back to the beginning of verse 22, where he says, Let us draw near. The whole idea is because Jesus has taken the obstacles out of the way and he's cleansed us. Therefore, we can draw near to God. 
And if you're never drawing near to God, if you're never connecting with him on an experiential basis, then something's wrong, something's lacking. It's as if this, it's if somebody gave you a marvelous automobile. Man, they gave you just the greatest Mercedes or Porsche or whatever, just some great, amazing car. There they give it to you, and they give you the keys to it. And what do you do with it? You just look at it and admire it. Maybe from time to time you read the owner's manual of it. Do you ever actually get into it and drive it? No, but it looks nice in your driveway or in your garage. And man, that owner's manual, you should read section 5, page 32. Wow, that's exciting. Now look, you're grateful for the car and you're grateful for the owner's manual, but don't forget this. The car was meant to drive. And Jesus has opened up the way to the living God for you and I so that we would draw near. And I pray that for you and for I and for all of us, 2014 would be a year when we genuinely draw near to the living God. When we say, Jesus, your blood provided the way. You stand as a high priest to make the way permanent for me to enter in. I'm going to do it and I'm going to fulfill what you have for me. Isn't that a beautiful thought? Wouldn't that be a greater thing for you to have a greater, genuine, biblical experience of God in this coming year than you've ever had before? Well, that's verse 22. Okay, again, remember, the first three verses, 19, 20, 21, he's summarizing the past. Verse 22, he says, here's what you do in light of it. Let us draw near. Now, if you notice in verse 23, he has another let us statement. Look at verse 23. He says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us draw near. Secondly, let us hold fast. Isn't that beautiful? Come on, friends. Let's hold fast. Let's not give an inch to the world, the flesh, or the devil. Let's be steadfast in the confession of our hope. We have a hope in Jesus Christ, and we will not be shaken from it. We're going to be steadfast. We're going to hold fast. Not only that, notice the phrase he uses in verse 23, without wavering. We're not going to be shaken to one side or another. I take it that back when this letter was originally written, that discouragement caused these early Christians to want to waver from the truth and maybe let go of God's hope. No, he says, you hold on to it. You stand strong in the faith. It is more needful today than it has ever been. We need believers who will hold fast to the word of God and to the truth of God. I read something in a sermon by Charles Spurgeon this last week. Spurgeon said that it would be a good thing to write that phrase on the cover of everybody's Bible. Hold fast. Wouldn't that be a great thing to write on the cover of your Bible? It'd be much different. You know what's on the cover of my Bible? It says, Holy Bible. Can I tell you a joke? It's a true story. And I didn't do it first service, but you guys are special to me in the second service. Don't tell anybody from first service that I said that. No, I, I had a friend who, when we, as a pastor back in Simi Valley, he was marvelously born again. He came from a pretty rough background, but he was marvelously born again. And so he went down to the Bible bookstore and he wanted to get a Bible. So he goes up to the clerk and he says, um, hi, I want a Bible. And the clerk very helpfully says, what kind do you want? You know, King James, New King James, study Bible, living Bible. What kind of Bible do you want? And my friend literally back, he said, holy Bible. That's kind of, 
Well, look, if you're going to get a Bible, why not a holy Bible? That's true. But look, here's be a great thing to write on the cover of every Bible. Hold fast. Hold fast. Now, this is what Spurgeon said some 150 years ago, and it was true in his day. It's even more true in our day. He said this, quote, We live in such a changing age that we need all to be exhorted, to be rooted and grounded, confirmed and established in the truth. Friends, if that was true 150 years ago in the days of Charles Spurgeon, how much more true is it today? We need something to hold fast on. When our society seems to be changing its mind on everything, what was right, uh, what was, let me put it this way, what was wrong 20 years ago is right today. What was wrong 20 years ago is right today. And you turn it around. What was right 20 years ago? It's wrong today. On and on and on. Everything changes in our society. You need something to hold fast upon. And it's the confession of our hope. And we need to hold on to it without wavering. And you can. I know sometimes you feel like you can't because the pressure from the world seems so big to push you away from holding fast. But look, here is the confidence of your hope for holding fast. Look at it there in verse 23. For he who promised is faithful. It's not your faithfulness that is the source of you holding fast. It's his faithfulness. Now, doesn't that make you feel better? You see, I can rely on his faithfulness. I can't rely on my faithfulness so much, but I can rely on his faithfulness, and that gives me great hope. So here we go. First, let us draw near. Second, let us hold fast. Now in verse 24, there's a third, let us. Look at it here, verse 24. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day approaching. You see, it's a very logical development. Here is what Jesus has done for us. And in light of what Jesus has done for us, let us draw near. Let us hold fast. Let us consider one another. Let us think about one another. It's kind of interesting. You could say that these three hold fast statements are made in the context of three different directions. Hold fast, excuse me, when he says, let us draw near, the three let us statements, let us draw near is given in relation to our relationship with God. Let us hold fast looks out around the world and we need to stand firm against a world that tries to get us to waver. Let us consider one another makes us look to one another in the community of the body of Christ and say, in light of what Jesus did for us on the cross, we need to consider one another and take care of one another. But it all begins with that. Did you see it in verse 24? Let us consider one another. First, you have to just think about one another. Listen, it's amazing how easy it is for us in the body of Christ to become extremely self-focused and we just don't consider one another. Look, you are important. God wants to bless you. God wants to move in your life. But it's almost as if it's wrong for you to focus upon that too much and you don't think about how God wants to use you to touch the lives of other people as well. 
to go around just focused on what God wants to do in my life sometimes misses the view of what God wants to do among us as a whole people. And that's why he exhorts them, consider one another. And to do what? Look at it there in verse 24. In order to stir up love and good works. What do you think, first of all, about those words, stir up? It's a very interesting ancient Greek word that's translated there, stir up. It's a very strong word, and sometimes it's used in a negative sense. Sometimes it means to provoke or to bug somebody to the point of irritation. Seriously. When Paul and Barnabas had their big disagreement in Acts chapter 15, verse 39, I believe it is, and it says that there was a contention between them, it's the same ancient Greek word. Basically, it means to bug somebody. Now, it can be used in a good context or in a bad context. Here, he means it in the good context. In the right kind of way, bug one another to provoke them to love and good works. God wants you, and believe me, I mean this in a good way, not in a negative way. God wants you to be a pest towards other people, provoking them to love and good works. And really, it's an amazing opportunity that we have. We can bug one another in a good way. We can provoke them to love and good works. You know, God has put at our disposal today so many ways that you can do this. You know one way you can provoke other people to love and good works? You can do it by a text message. I know people have legitimate ministry through text message. They got a circle of people that they text message regularly and they send them encouraging scriptures, encouraging words. They seek to provoke other people by text message unto love and good works. That's a great way to do it. You can do it through social media. You can get out your Facebook or your Twitter or your Instagram or whatever it is that you would use these days. And you could use it not only to take pictures of the food that you eat. We're all very interested in that. Thank you. But you know what? How much more wonderful to use it to provoke someone else in the body of Christ towards love and good works. You know, another way that you can do this, and I know this is going to sound shocking, you can actually just talk to somebody. No, really, that works. Just actually speaking with them uh, through a phone call or through a personal conversation. You can do it the way that we talk about sometimes here at Calvary Chapel. We talk about doing it in the way where you deliberately come to church 15 minutes early and you stay 30 minutes after. And you do it with the deliberate intention that that is my ministry time. That's when I'm going to look for somebody to encourage. I'm going to look to somebody to pray for. I'm going to look to somebody to build up in the name of Jesus. You could say that the time we have right now, Right now, this is my ministry time, so to speak. I'm attempting to teach the word of God to you. But you have your ministry time when we gather. And that's the whole idea behind these one another statements. When he says, in order to stir... Excuse me, let me go back to verse 24. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. It's not speaking so much of a top-down thing from the pastor to the people as much as it is from the people amongst themselves provoking and stirring one another up to love and good works. That's what God calls us to do. Now, as a part of that, you'll notice in verse 25, as a part of that or as a component of that, there is this idea that we should not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. 
He says it is important for us to gather together as Christians. Now, this is an easy message for me to bring to you today because you're all here. Right. Apparently you're here and there may be a few of you who are here against your will, but you're being good sports about it. And I respect you for that. But you're here. Sometimes when pastors really want to hammer this idea of not forsaking the assembling of themselves together, they forget that they're talking to the people who are actually there. I got to say, my heart is burdened when I think of our community. And I pray this way. I think this way as I pray for our community. I think not only of the many thousands of people, the tens of thousands of people who don't know Jesus in our community, and we want them to come to faith in Jesus Christ. And that's one of the reasons why I'm glad that we are actively outreaching church, that we actively seek to organize ways that we can do evangelism, not just one way, but any way God gives us opportunity to do it. We want to see people come to faith in Jesus. But when I think about our community, I don't only think about those who don't yet know Jesus. I think about our community and there must be thousands of people who are genuine believers. And I mean that they love Jesus. They're genuine believers. But you know what? They don't have a church home. They they don't have a group of Christians that they meet with regularly for worship and the word and to glorify God and to encourage one another to love and good works. And that kind of breaks my heart. Because I want so much for those people to have the fullness of what God has for them. And when I think about it, how there are several, there are many good churches in our community. Those people should be able to find one of those good churches and settle down into them and really become in a greater participatory way, really functioning, active members in the body of Christ. You see, here's what kind of works against it sometimes. Sometimes what works against it is the attitude that I'll go to church when I need it. So when I feel like I need it, then I'll go to church. Look, I suppose that's better than saying, well, I'll never go to church. That's fine. But here's the problem with that is that it's awfully self-focused. I would hope that there would be people who would come to fellowship regularly here who would say, you know what? I don't feel like I need it at all today, but I can go and be a blessing to somebody else. I can go and encourage somebody else. I can go and pray for somebody else. It's not just a matter of what I might particularly feel at the need, but you go there to glorify God and to give unto others. That's what we want to do. When we come together, we gather to receive something from God together in the worship, in the prayer, in the word. We gather to give something unto God when we give him our worship, when when we give to him of our resources. We gather to encourage one another by our faith and by our common shared values. Friends, I don't know if you notice. But the world out there is getting more and more hostile to biblical faith and values. It just is. That's the way the world is going. And I'm not trying to be a prophet, nor am I trying to be Mr. Discouragement. But as I look about in the culture, I can probably say that in the next year, it's going to get worse than it is this year. It's just that's the trend that's going. 
how much we need to be able to come together and spend a few moments of hopeful sanity in the presence of one another where we say we share these biblical values. We share this biblical faith. It's an important thing for us to do together. We gather together to bless one another. We also gather together to work with one another. You know, for many of us, Sunday, and I'm not just speaking of myself, I put myself sort of at the end of the list, but Sunday or when we gather together, it's a time of work. Right now, there are people over there in the children's ministry who are working their tails off. They're working harder than I am right now at the moment. They're trying to corral a bunch of energetic kids, you know, that that need that attention. But that work together is also glorious, and it really builds something together. There is a closeness that you have with other people by working together with them for a common cause, for a common purpose in God's work that is absolutely wonderful. No, this is our call today. Let me read to you a quote from a guy named James Moffat. He said this. This was about 100 years ago. He said, any early Christian who attempted to live like a pious particle without the support of the community ran serious risks in an age when there was no public opinion to support him. First of all, I read that just because I like that phrase, pious particle. I don't know why I like that. But do you know some pious particles? Do do you know some Christians? And they do love the Lord. They are born again. They do love Jesus. But they live their life as a pious particle separated from the body of Christ. Maybe God can use you this year to draw them into the body of Christ. You know why? Because they need it and we all need it. And I'll tell you why. Look at that quote again because I think it explains it. He says, in the early church they did it because without the support of the community, they ran serious risk in an age when there was no public opinion to support them. That describes our present age. How much public opinion support is there for what we do as Christians? Well, I'll say this, less and less makes it all the more important for us to gather together. So friends, it's important. We find that good, healthy congregation and we support it and we join together with it. Finally, look at here in verse 25. So much the more as you see the day approaching. As we see the coming of Jesus off on the horizon, it should make us more interested, more passionate about his return and say, no, it's more important for me to gather together with other believers than ever before. Now, look, I don't know when Jesus is going to return. I pray it soon. I have not given up hope for 2013, personally, even though there's a few days left. I'm still rooting for 2013. But look, if it doesn't happen this year, Maybe it'll be 2014. As we see the day approaching closer and closer, it should make us even more diligent to hang together and to support one another. Let us consider one another to stir up one another to love and good works. So you see how this message lays out? First, what Jesus did for us. Then three let us statements. Let us draw near. Let us hold fast. Let us consider one another. 